We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the The 9th of Ab in Jewish calendars is Friday 13th on steroids. Nerves must be jangling as that day of their calendar approaches. The worst high points in the history of the Jews happen on this day. On that day in 586 BC, the Babylonians demolished the first temple in Jerusalem built by the legendary Jewish king Solomon. In the year 70 AD, the Romans almost completely demolished the second temple, built by King Herod the Great. What survived were the retaining walls, particularly sacred to the Jews, is the wall on the west side. It's known as either the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. Continuing the Jews' incredible run of bad luck on that same date in the year 135 AD, Rome brought to an end the Bar Kokhba revolt, ending Jewish dreams of independence from Rome. After that revolt, the province of Judea was renamed Palestina, hearkening back to the previous occupants of that land in the long distant past, before the Jews arrived, the Philistines. The Philistines had lived in and around Gaza. Then, moving closer to our own times on that same day, England expelled its Jews in the 13th century, France expelled its Jews in the 14th century, and Spain, after Ferdinand and Isabella had reconquered all of their country from the Muslims, expelled their Jews in the 15th century. You won't be surprised to hear that in Jerusalem on the 9th of Av in 1929, one of the bloodiest riots so far against the Jews started. The triggering factor, almost as always, was the Grand Mufti. The object of the riot was over what the Jews call the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. That riot was significant. It marked the beginning of a swelling violence against the Jews in Palestine that would culminate in the Arab revolt that broke out in 1936, all of which trouble saw the Jews having various rights of immigrating into Palestine limited or ended, and likewise their entitlement to acquire land. This program is about the 1929 riots, and you're not going to believe what happened. The Wailing Wall isn't only a holy site to the Jews. Islam also connects with the Jewish beliefs in part through Abraham and through other events in the Torah. The Wailing Wall to the Muslims is the place where Muhammad tied up his flying steed with a human face named Burak during Muhammad's famous night journey to Jerusalem, after which Muhammad ascended to heaven temporarily. Historically, in recent times, before the British mandate, the Wailing Wall had not fared too well in Muslim hands. Legally, it belonged to the Abu Maidan Waqf, 
whose ownership was traced back to Saladin's son, Aftal, who had been given title to it. In the 19th century, the Ottomans had used the tunnel as a donkey stable. The lane between the wall and the adjoining Arab homes was narrow, just 3.4 metres wide. It was often strewed with the refuse of the residents and donkey poo. The status quo at the time about Jewish worship at the wall was that the Jews were banned from raising their voices or even from praying there at all. But the reality was different. The Ottoman authorities tolerated Jewish worship as long as it was muted. During high holidays, this tolerance was stretched a wee bit further. Jews were allowed to use benches, particularly for the elderly to be seated, a ram's horn musical instrument called a shofar, and a screen to divide the sexes, as is the Jewish tradition. On Yom Kippur Eve in 1928, the Jewish beadle, a helper in the synagogue, brought out a larger Torah ark than usual, some mats, lamps and a screen. The police tried to remove the unusual items that had been brought to the wailing wall by the beetle. The beetle clung so tenaciously to the ark that when it was thrown by the police down an adjoining six-metre cactus-filled valley, the beetle followed it into the ravine. The British acted quickly to affirm the previous status quo to avoid upsetting Muslim feelings. The Jews demanded increased access and access rights to the wall. Times had changed, they said, with the Balfour Declaration. The Ottoman Empire was gone. The mandate required religious tolerance. One Jewish newspaper showed an artist's impression with a Star of David on top of the Dome of the Rock. That was unfortunate. The Grand Mufti started a campaign called the Burak Campaign, to strengthen Muslim ownership of the wall and the plaza above it. He told the government that the Jews were plotting to take over the Mosque of Al-Aqsa. Various political clashes followed. In the summer of 1929, the Grand Mufti had a doorway opened that made the Wailing Wall into an Arab pathway for donkeys and people. Then a small mosque was erected on nearby houses, and a muezzin was installed to summon the faithful with calls to prayer. With each passing day, the muezzin's call to prayer grew louder, it seemed, drowning out the Jewish prayers. Jews were attacked across Jerusalem by Muslims. Britain had said that it would enforce the Ottoman restrictions at the wall, and so it did. They wouldn't allow screens, tables or shofars. Jewish protests followed across Palestine. 6,000 Jewish protesters in Tel Aviv, 3,000 at the wall, as well as in other places in Palestine, turned up shouting, The wall is ours! On Thursday, 15 August 1929, a 300-strong Zionist demonstration led by historian Joseph Klausner marched to the wall in silence, guarded by British police. They raised the Zionist flag and sang songs. The next day, another protest was held at the wall by 300 young Jews from Jabotinsky's Zionist movement. Jabotinsky was a more militant Jew than Chaim Wiseman, who was at this time their official leader. 
These Jews sang the Jewish anthem, Hatikva, and again chanted, The world is ours! Unfortunately, that day was also the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. The Grand Mufti's Supreme Council led a march to the wall. Led by the imams from the Al-Aqsa Mosque, 2,000 people attended. The Beatles' table was turned over, again. Jewish holy books were burned, and so were scraps of paper with prayers written on them by the Jews, which were inserted into cracks in the wall, as was the Jewish custom. The Muslims chased the Jewish worshippers from the wall. On Saturday, 17th August, a 17-year-old Jewish youth was attacked and murdered after his soccer ball rolled into a Muslim tomato patch in the village of Lifta, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Hearing of this attack, Jews attacked an Arab teenager, stabbing him. He survived. The Jewish boy did not. At the funeral for the Jewish boy, there were shouts demanding vengeance. Over the next 72 hours, Jews attacked Muslims at least 12 times, and Muslims attacked Jews at least 7 times. The next Friday, 23 August, before sunrise, several thousand Muslims from nearby villages streamed into Jerusalem. By late morning, there were at least 12,000 Muslim worshippers in the Haram, the sacred compound at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Imam called on the gathered faithful to lift their hands and vow to defend their holy places to the death. Then he said the fateful words, Then go, pounce upon your enemies and kill that you in doing so may obtain paradise. Emotion ran so high, the governor of Jerusalem remembered that many rushed out of the mosque, sobbing and declaring that they could not pray. Some were carrying daggers and swords, others pistols and rifles. Some, a few brave Muslims, stood up to the mob and tried to stop them, but they had no success against that raging tsunami of emotions that the imam had deliberately unleashed. The Muslims attacked the Jewish quarter. 31 Jews were killed there. In one household alone, five members of the same family were slaughtered. Jewish passers-by were attacked, some killed, many injured. Jewish doors were set on fire. 48 kilometres up the road from Jerusalem was the city of Hebron. There, the patriarch Abraham had bought a burial plot where he and his wife Sarah had been buried. This was a holy place, but what was about to happen was not. It had been inhabited, the town of Hebron, by many Jews, especially at the invitation of Suleiman I, after they had been expelled from Spain. There were really no recently arrived Zionist Jews. Well, a few exceptions. In 1929, 24,000 Muslims lived in Hebron and just 700 Jews. Some of the Jews were Ashkenazi Jews, recent arrivals, including students from America and Lithuania, who were attending a yeshiva, a Jewish religious school, that had recently located to Hebron from Europe. As the riots continued in Jerusalem, one Muslim man arrived by motorcycle in Hebron. Hundreds of Muslims had been killed in Jerusalem, he told anyone willing to listen, which was most of the Muslim population. 
The Muslims of Hebron should avenge themselves on their Jews, he urged. The events over these days made the British realise what they had to deal with in Palestine, but troubles in Europe and other parts of the world prevented them from immediately deploying enough personnel there, especially military, to firmly control the British mandate. But having enough troops wasn't the situation in 1929 when this riot happened. The first place in Hebron to draw the attention of the Muslim mob was the yeshiva. One of the students there was lynched. Another only lived to tell what happened because he hid himself down a well. The entire British police force in the mandate at this time numbered 1,500 men for the entire country. Most of them were Muslims and they were led by just 175 British officers. In Hebron, the police superintendent was Raymond Kefarata. He had 33 constables under him. Half of them were elderly and all but one of them were Muslims with one Jew. In accordance with the British practice then, and for many years until comparatively recently, the police were not armed. Certainly not the non-British police, who were described as native police. Superintendent Kafarata called his bosses in Jerusalem for reinforcements. He was told there were none to be had. Things now got serious. Superintendent Kafarata was visited by the local Jewish leaders. He told them to concentrate their community in one or a few houses. The Jewish leaders thought that seemed a risky proposition, putting all of your Jewish eggs into one basket. But they trusted the British. What choice did they have? They also trusted the Arab notables of the Nashashibi family, who were rather friendly towards the Jews. And maybe above all, they put their trusting God, because these were most likely Jews who had lived there a long time, and they weren't tainted so much by the secularism that was sweeping the European Jews. Was it an act of faith by these Hebron Jews in all of the foregoing, or an act of foolhardiness? When they turned down an offer by the Haganah, the paramilitary arm of the Jews, to send a dozen armed men, although how much use that number would be in what was about to happen is doubtful. Next, Superintendent Kafarata was visited by the local Mukhtars, the headmen of the nearby Arab villages in the area. They told him the Grand Mufti was demanding that they join the attack on the Jews. The Grand Mufti was threatening to fine them if they refused. Kafarata told them not to do anything. The city was now calm, he said. Everything was under control. Famous last words. Go home. The next morning, the Jewish Sabbath saw atrocities against the Jews, the likes of which Palestine had never known up to now. A disabled pharmacist and his wife were murdered. Their 13-year-old daughter was gang-raped and then killed. Another couple survived by rolling in the blood of the others and lying still. Limbs, testicles and eyes were cut from living people, some of them old men and children. Only one of the Jews was lucky enough to die by bullet. The rest of the Jews killed that day were killed by blunter, more brutal methods of execution. In a single day, 67 Jews were butchered and more than 50 wounded. Thanks be to God, 
It wasn't a day that just showed the incredible brutality that people can descend to against their fellow human beings. Mercifully, the Jews weren't without Muslims who stepped up and risked a lot to save them. Aaron Burnsweek was one of the Jews who owed his life to a Muslim. He said, God blessed be he in his great mercy, sent us an Arab who lived in back of our house. Aaron was an American, as you might have guessed, who had retired to Tel Aviv. As fate would have it, he was summering in Hebron. His guardian angels were his neighbor, a man by the name of Abu Mahmoud al-Qadir. With his wife, they stood outside Aaron Burnsweek's house, telling the rioters that they hadn't seen any Jews. The Qadirs had left their 10-year-old son inside the house to reassure the terrified Jews that they would not give them up to the mob. His mum and dad had also coached him with the words he was to yell from inside the house, There are no Jews here! They all ran away! All told, two dozen Arab homes in Hebron opened their doors to shelter Jews. At least 250 were saved by these kind, caring souls. Superintendent Kafarata said later that if it hadn't been for those rescuers, not a single Jew in Hebron would have survived. Over the following days, the violence spread to two dozen locations across the areas where the Palestine Jewish settlements were located, along the coast between Tel Aviv and Haifa, down the Jezreel Valley and into the Galilee. Safed, the hilltop hub of medieval Jewish mysticism, saw the goriest scenes from Hebron repeated. The violence lasted six days, at the end of which 133 Jews were dead. 116 Muslims had been killed by the British troops. Possibly six of those were killed by the Jews. There were precious few British soldiers in Palestine at this time. Two battalions were permanently stationed there after the 1929 Wailing Wall riots, with considerably more troops to follow after the Arab Revolt of 1936. The final count revealed that more than 300 Jews had also been wounded, as well as 200 Muslims. In more modern terms, I'd compare the psychological effect of these August 1929 riots to the North Vietnamese Tet Offensive, by which I mean that for the British it called into question the whole Balfour Declaration idea of creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine. The first generation of British rulers over Palestine had had a pretty easy run up until this incident. See, for example, June 1925, when Sir Samuel returned to London and announced that in Palestine the spirit of lawlessness has ceased. The next commissioner after him was Viscount Plumer. He walked around the streets of Jerusalem to show his confidence in how peaceful it was. But his officials reported to him that there were seething political tensions. But he promptly put his head in the sand and said, There is no political situation. Don't create one. He was wrong, as you've just seen. The riots made world headlines. The Muslims called them the Thawrat al-Burak, the Burak Uprising. The impact of these riots, in my assessment, destroyed British political confidence in seeing the job of creating the Jewish homeland through. The Arab revolt would come in 1936, and the British handled the military side of that incident incredibly well. But 
The new British High Commissioner to the Palestinian Mandate, Sir John Chancellor, told his son, I know of no one who would be a good High Commissioner of Palestine except God. Cairo's Al-Aram newspaper wrote that peace would elude Palestine until the government made clear to the Jews that it was an Arab land. It said, The Arabs will fight in defence of their interests, and if the government practices the policy of silence, it will be the silence of the flame which will suddenly burst forth. In Britain, some papers questioned whether Palestine was worth it. The Evening News described the British mandate as the insensate folly of the Zionist experiment. The Evening Star said it was the maddest of all Britain's post-war adventures. The London Times said hesitation there would invite unrest elsewhere in the empire. The Daily News felt the burdens of empire had to be met in dealing with this problem. It said, however much we may dislike the job, we must go on with it or submit to the derisive condemnation of the civilised world. The Pan-Islamic Congress was held in Jerusalem in 1931. It was presided over by Hajj Amin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti. 122 delegations from all Muslim countries of the world, except Turkey, attended. It gathered to spell out the common Muslim grievances with the Western world and to make representations against the West. The Congress expressed strong condemnation of Zionism and the British, and importantly, for the first time with one voice, the Muslim world declared its radical opposition to Western civilization, culture and politics. It requested custody of the holy places in Palestine, recognition of the Wailing Wall as among Islamic holy sites, and the opening of a Muslim university in Jerusalem. The Hebrew University of Jerusalem had been started by the Jews in 1918 and had opened in 1925. The ugly events of 1929, together with the incitement from the Congress, increased the Grand Mufti's fame in the Muslim world. His status had risen enormously on the backs of those riots. Now he was not only the leader of the Palestinian Muslims, but was also seen as defender of Jerusalem. He became the hero and defender of Muslim honour in the world. His image had grown unexpectedly, and the Supreme Muslim Council became the most important Arab political body in the country. Encouraged by the shockwaves that the riots had created, the Muslims requested a total ban on Jewish immigration to Palestine. The Grand Mufti now believed that the movement had to start spreading its influence outside the Palestinians. He began to collect contributions from the Muslim world in order to travel to Iran and Afghanistan. He built connections with India, a country with a large Muslim community and the most populous nation in the British Empire. The Indian delegation stopped in Cairo to meet with the Grand Mufti's people on their way to the talks in London that followed on from the 1929 riots. The Grand Mufti sent Jamal Husseini to London to reinforce the new connection with India. Shokat Ali was the principal leader of 70 million Muslims in India, while Muhammad Ali, an Oxford graduate, was a newspaper editor speaking to India's opposition 
to the British Mandate of Palestine, who stressed the radical Muslim character of his movement. During the London Conference, Muhammad Ali died unexpectedly. The Grand Mufti offered to bury the Indian leader in Jerusalem. He was duly laid to rest in the Mosque of Al-Aqsa on 23 January 1931. It was a brilliant political move by which the Grand Mufti drew the 70 million Indian Muslims into his sphere of influence, which helped his funding into the bargain. What happened with the money raised is a familiar story in connection with Palestine. Instead of benefiting the Muslim people of Palestine, which was why it was raised, it was used instead to arm Muslim rebels. Muslim interest in Germany started to grow in 1930 when a Syrian-Palestinian delegation was sent to meet German representatives at the League of Nations to oppose the creation of a neutral commission set up in the wake of the Jerusalem riots to try to resolve the question of how to make the holy places in Palestine, including the Wailing Wall, fairly accessible to the three faiths derived from Abraham, Jews, Christians and Muslims. Among them was the Grand Mufti's close collaborator, Shakib Aslam, a Lebanese Arab philosopher and nationalist. In 1931, the Grand Mufti supported the founding of the Arab Party for Independence. It picked up the common thread, the undisputed reality that there had never been a state of Palestine and none was wanted now. The party vigorously called for political and religious union between Palestine and Syria a region under French mandate at the time. After the rise to power of Hitler in Germany in 1933, the Grand Mufti informed his disciples and collaborators that he was glimpsing a new and bright future and foresaw the coming of a new era of freedom for Muslims all over the world. For the Muslims, a new hero had emerged. Particularly loved was Hitler's speech, that had been delivered in Munich way back on 13 August 1920, when he pronounced the motto, Anti-Semites of the world, unite! People of Europe, free yourselves! For the Jews, the 1929 riots also began to cause changes, which were ultimately to prove decisive. In October 1930, the British released the White Paper, which followed the Hope Simpson report. The White Paper recommended limiting Jewish immigration to take into account Muslim unemployment levels, which were easily manipulated by the Muslims and a way of restricting them to come in. And restricting major land sales to the Jews was also advocated. Chaim Wiseman, who had been the president of the World Zionist Organization since 1917, was deposed in 1931. Before he was deposed, he had been successful in getting the British Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald, to renounce the White Paper, but his days of leadership had been numbered by the 1929 riots and the following White Paper, which was terrifying for those Jews wanting a homeland. Weizmann was soon to be replaced by David Ben-Gurion as Jewish leader. He seems to have been the man ordained by destiny for this next crucial stage of leadership for Jerusalem, especially when the Arab revolt suddenly and unexpectedly flushed into life in 1936. It would change everything. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. 
probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites. <laughs>